Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Please pray with me. Lord God, you have declared that your kingdom is among us. Open our eyes to see it, our ears to hear it, our hearts to hold it, our hands to serve it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A reading from Isaiah, chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a 100 years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred years will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Hear now the scriptures from the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. This is the word of God. God. It's good to be back here in this church. I was here before. Inevitably, people come up to you when you return to a church and say, do you remember me? (laughs) I've never known how to answer that until just recently because I had a divine revelation. A lady asked me, do you remember me? And I said, madam, 
in order to get any work done, I had to put you out of my mind. I especially appreciated the children's talk. I, I, I think anybody who gives those needs a, a round of applause, don't you agree? <laughs> They're hard. Uh, I, uh, I, I have a friend who said, I, I had the boys and girls sitting down, and I said, boys and girls, what's this big? Has a long furry tail and climbs trees. Dead silence. And then one kid said, I know I'm supposed to say Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel. <laughs> Living as you do in an academic community, you have a special responsibility. You have a responsibility to reach out to the students in this area, bring them into the church, and do what the church is supposed to do for them. First of all, the church, and I'm a sociologist, so I'm going to use sociological terms, has to create a plausibility structure. The students live in a secular institution. They live out their lives in a secular cultural system, a system that does not readily accept that there is transcendence. And we are here to declare to them what is countercultural. We are here to declare to them that there is a God who transcends time and space, and the 2,000 years broke into history, was born in a manger, grew up, died on the cross, and somehow it is possible for us to connect with this Jesus and allow him to reach across time and space and connect with us and absorb out of us the dark side of our humanity, to take from us those things that mar our souls. We believe in this stuff, and it's absurd to a world in which there is no truth beyond that which can be apprehended by the five senses or understood by categories of reason. It's unreasonable. It's unscientific. And yet we declare this, that God was incarnate in Christ. He, he came into the world. He lived among us. He died on the cross. And in that cross, we can find a Savior who reaches out and touches us if we open ourselves up to him. Not only do we believe in the historical truths, but we believe that this same Christ is alive among us. And as the scripture says, he, he stands at our heart's door and knocks and hopes that we'll open and invite him in to live with us. There's a big difference between believing in the theology of the Presbyterian church. There's a big difference between affirming the Apostles' Creed and experiencing Christ invading us, coming alive within us, penetrating our being. I had Pentecostal friends, and they seemed to have something that I didn't have. They were alive. They were vital. They had energy. It was incredible to be among them. It's no wonder that the Assemblies of God churches are growing rapidly while American Baptists and Presbyterians are, are declining in number. I'm, I'm Baptist. <laughs> you don't have to be Baptist to go to heaven, amen? But why take a chance? That's what I want to know. Why are... But those of us who are in the Reformed tradition believe that it's of crucial importance that people affirm the essential doctrines of the faith, i.e., what's written in the Apostles' Creed, that we believe that Jesus on the cross takes away our sins, reaches across time and space, and touches us. 
but we also affirm in the Holy Spirit that will enter into us and flow into us. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, believed all the things that we believe. He was orthodox to the core. He came to America as a missionary, but failed miserably. On his way back to Europe, his way back to England, he's on a ship and a hurricane comes upon them. And the ship is tossing and, and, and he's sure it's going to go down and he will die and he's trembling in fear. And from the next cabin, he hears a group of Moravian Christians singing hymns of praise and joy to the Lord and said, woe is me. What do they have that I don't have? Why can they be joyful in the face of death? And I am filled with fear. He returned to England and he was shattered by his experiences at sea. He's wandering almost aimlessly down the streets of, of London and he wanders into a prayer meeting on Aldersgate Street. There's a small group of people there and they're singing and there's praying and, and as he sits there, he writes this. As they were reading from Luther's commentary to the Romans where it says that just shall live by faith, suddenly my heart was strangely warm. And I knew it was more than a theology. The living Christ had invaded him, filled him up, created within him a joy, an ecstasy, an aliveness, a vitality that he had never known before. That's what I want. Not just a theology, not just a belief system. I want to be invaded by Christ. I want him into my life. My Pentecostal friends seem to have that. I, I, I preached in Latin America, I preached in Argentina and everywhere I went, when people came forward and the pastor would lay hands on them, they would fall over and they would get up a while later and be vibrantly alive. I wanted that. I remember people laying hands on me and praying that I would receive the Holy Spirit. Nothing happened. It just wasn't in my DNA. But a Catholic friend introduced me to the writings of St. Ignatius. And I learned new ways of praying. I had always prayed like Baptists and Presbyterians pray. You know how we do it. We read off a list of non-negotiable demands to the Almighty. <laughs> Telling God a lot of stuff that God already knows, dear Lord. Heal Sister Mary who is sick in the hospital. What do you think God's saying? Whoa, I didn't know that. Which hospital? God knows what you need before you even ask. Please, I still make my request known to God, but it's more to establish dependency than it is to inform the Almighty. Sometimes we pray like my son prayed when he was seven years old, coming into the living room and saying, I'm going to bed. I'm going to be praying. Anybody want anything? <laughs> and I wonder whether or not our prayers are simply sophisticated versions of that same thing. Or is there other kinds of praying? Are there other kinds of praying? I learned other ways of praying from a Catholic, from St. Ignatius. I wake up in the morning before I have to and lie in bed in absolute stillness. And I don't ask God for anything. One time they asked Mother Teresa, when you pray, what do you say to God? She said, I, I don't say anything, I listen. So Dan Rather said, all right. When you pray, what does God say to you? She said, God doesn't say anything. God listens. And then she said, if you don't understand that, I can explain it to you. 
I do understand a kind of praying where you say nothing and hear nothing, but you simply surrender and wait. We all know that passage in Isaiah that says, they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Yes, but when was the last time you spent 15 minutes, 20 minutes in dead silence waiting, waiting for the Spirit of God to flow into you, invade you, possess you? I wish I could say every morning it happens, but it does happen. Being a sociologist, I have statistically analyzed it, and it's about one out of every eight times. <laughs> But I do feel Christ invade me more than a theology. As the old hymn goes, I ask no dream, no prophet's ecstasy, but I want that spirit that will take the deadness of my soul away. And I wait, and I wait, and I wait for the Lord to flow into me. And I feel him come into me. I feel, I feel the Holy Spirit. I feel her invade me. I, I feel Christ alive in me and it changes things. That's an absurd doctrine you've just articulated, Dr. Campolo, that's an absurd doctrine. It's absurd to the secular world, but the church creates what sociologists call a plausibility structure, a counter-cultural value system, a counter-cultural belief system can only be maintained if you regularly get together with people who renew it, revitalize, regenerate, those ecstasies, those spirits, those truths within you. That's what the church is about. And in the context of an academic community that batters those beliefs, that batters the idea that there is transcendence, that looks almost scornfully at the fact that a man born in time and space should somehow be able to connect with people all over the universe and absorb into himself as though he was a sponge all the dirt and darkness of their souls. Those beliefs do not fit into the categories of logic, of empirical reality. And so, in fact, we need to get together. The early church would get together every, every day, every morning they would get together, every morning. The church in China, the, the underground church, still does that every morning, gets together to reaffirm what they believe because you're living in a world that contradicts it and it will become increasingly unreal unless you meet with one another and support one another and encourage one another and build up each other's faith. That's why you're here. That's why students who are not here should be here because they need to have the faith that their parents taught them, that they learned in the church, revitalized, renewed, regenerated, and coming together with other Christians who reaffirm, who rededicate themselves, who re-strengthen them. Sociologists call this a plausibility structure. What the world out there in a secular value system says is implausible. Within this context, as we sing, as we pray together, what they say is unreal becomes exceedingly real. Secondly, the students need to be here, and the school that you live amongst it requires that its students think one way, and you have to get them to think another way. Because the church not only revitalizes, renews faith, calls upon people to surrender to the invasion of the resurrected Christ, but we also are able to give students meaning, purpose. Viktor Frankl said, without meaning, people don't don't live very well, if they live at all. My friend who has now passed away, Fred Craddock, talked about the fact that he had a, an uncle who loved greyhound dogs. They make wonderful pets, you know. And his uncle would go down to the greyhound racing track and rescue dogs from the racing track after their racing life was over. He went to see his uncle and 
there was a greyhound dog in the middle of the living room floor, wrestling with the children, having a grand old time, the children laughing and petting and kissing the dog. It was, it was wonderful. And Fred said, I looked down at the dog and I said, dog, how come you're not racing anymore? Are you too old to race? And the dog said, oh no, I'm still quite young, quite vital. Well, you weren't winning any races and that's why they took you off the racing track. Oh no, said the dog. I believe I won almost every race I ever was in. I was good at winning. Well, if you are still young and if you are still winning, well, then why aren't you racing anymore? And the dog said, because one day I realized that rabbit I was chasing wasn't real. I have to tell you this, having taught at the University of Pennsylvania for 10 years, I, I can tell you that so many of my students were chasing rabbits that weren't real. So many of the people that you know at work are chasing rabbits that aren't real. The world in which we live holds up artificial life, pretend goals. And after we reach them, we begin to take a deep breath and ask a simple question. Is this all there is or is there something more? And that's why the church is here to say there is something more. There is a goal, there's a purpose, and if you commit yourself to that goal, to that purpose, your life will be alive with the essence of meaning, and meaning does make you alive. You say, what is the meaning? It is this, to create the kingdom of God in this world. When they asked Jesus why he came, he did not say, I came to get people into heaven when they die, and at my age, and I'm, Old now? That's really important to go to heaven when you die. I've reached that age where when I go to a wedding, the bride's grandmother looks better to me than the bride. You know, I mean, you know you're old when that happens. <laughs> What's the meaning of it all? To become a participant with God, to join up with God, to join up with the Jesus who came into the world, not simply to get us into heaven when we die. And there's that to be affirmed. It is true. There is life after death in Jesus Christ. But his primary reason for being amongst us, if you had asked him, what is your primary reason? In Matthew, Mark, Luke, he starts off by declaring his mission. I have come to declare that the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God is transformed people living in a transformed world. I, uh, there's this... There's a psychologist that taught child psychology at Harvard for years, Robert Coles. He went to visit a family in Chicago, excuse me, in Florida that were dear to him. They were very anxious to talk to Dr. Coles because they had their son in, in counseling sessions. And so, in fact, uh, he asked the question, what, what's wrong? What, what's wrong? Why, why does he need counseling? said, well, here's what happened. He was at school, and the teacher asked person after person, student after student in this fifth grade class, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, this was the child of the richest family in Florida. And when they get to him, the son of the richest family in Florida, what do you want to be when you grow up? He answered, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I know what I don't want to be. I don't want to be rich. The teacher was stunned at this. Was this uh, 
And the Oedipus complex was this rejecting his father, rejecting his family, rejecting what they were all about, the accumulation of wealth. He was sent to the school counselor. The school counselor said, this is beyond me. And so they were counseling this boy. The counselor finally concluded that the boy was going to church and taking what he heard far too seriously. <laughs> so if they could just keep him out of church for a while, <laughs> that would work. And so they did. They went to the beach. They played tennis on Sunday morning. They, they saw no need to go to the church. Robert Coles said, some 15 years later, I visited that same family again, and we were having dinner, and this young man came in, handsome young man. But as he sat at the table and talked with us, his arrogance, his self-centeredness, his materialistic values radiated. And I looked at this young man who had no meaning, no purpose, no goals in life that transcended material things. I almost wept. They had beaten Jesus out of his mind and heart. They had delivered him from the truth that he had a meaning, he had a purpose, he had a goal. It was to help to create the kingdom of God, to create the kingdom of God here on earth. Not only in terms of moving into business spheres and into politics and into the arts, and we should move into all of these things, but to move in as agents of transformation there to transform the arts into the kind of art that Jesus wants art to be. Business into the kind of business that nurtures the goodness of other people and ministers to them in their need. When we hear about pharmaceutical companies that take a pill that costs $1 to produce and puts it on the market for $750 so that poor people who desperately need that pill cannot afford to buy it. And that's, this is a true thing. Something's gone wrong. Somebody out there in that business world has got his or her values all screwed up. When you have an automobile company that produces automobiles and lies about emissions so that there are 11 million cars on the road that are polluting that should not be polluting, and worse than that, 11 million of them. And then there's 3 million of them that have ignitions that are dangerous because they may, in fact, create these cars to go on fire. There's something wrong when this is knowingly, get the word knowingly, done to maximize profits. I asked students, why are you in college? And they say, to get an education. And if I push them, and say, why is that important? Well, if you get a good education, you get a good job. And why is that important? If you get a good job, you'll make a lot of money. And why is that important? If you have a lot of money, you'll be able to buy all the stuff. All the stuff, 90% of which you don't need. And we wonder why they turn out as materialists. And the church of Jesus Christ stands over against that value system and says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and don't worry about these things. I believe in education. I'm an educator by trade. But the purpose of a great education is to not prepare a generation of young people to get the job, to make the money, to buy the stuff. The purpose of an education is to equip young people to become agents of God who can invade the world and become persons who will transform the sectors of the world into which they go into what God wants them to be.
That's what education is about. And I'm afraid we talk to our young people with the former instead of the latter. You are called to follow Jesus, to be a kingdom creator in word and deed, in small ways and in great ways to create the kingdom of God. One of my favorite stories is going to Honolulu for a conference and, and uh, I woke up at three o'clock in the morning because if you come from the East Coast, that's what happens. I was hungry and I got dressed and went out looking for something to eat and 3.30 in the morning, I'm wandering around looking for a place that's open and I can't find one. Up a side street, I find a greasy spoon and I go in. There's nobody in the place, just a row of stools in front of a counter. I, it was a greasy place. I didn't even touch the menu. I, I knew that if I opened it, something extraterrestrial would crawl out, you know. And this heavy set guy comes from the back room. He says, what do you want? Greasy place, greasy apron. Pulls out a cigar, puts it down. What do you want? I said, a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured the coffee and then he did this. And he picked up the donut. I hate that. So there I am, 3.30 in the morning, drinking my coffee, eating the dirty donut. And into the place come about eight or nine prostitutes. And they sat on either side of me. And they were loud and they were boisterous. The one next to me, particularly loud, particularly boisterous. And among the things she said was this, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. The friend next to her said, so what do you want me to do? Sing happy birthday? Are we supposed to throw a party, bring you gifts? Is that what you want? First woman said, don't rag on me. I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. That did it. I waited until they left. I called Harry, the guy behind the counter. I said, are they in here every night? He said, yes. I said, the one next to me, he said, Agnes. I said, tomorrow's her birthday. What do you say we decorate the place and throw a party for her right here tomorrow night when she comes in? He said, that's, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. He called his wife, Jan, come out here. I want you to meet this guy. He wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. She came out, she grabbed my hand, held it very tightly and said, oh, mister, that's a good thing. You wouldn't understand this. But Agnes is a loving person. She's always doing for others and nobody ever does for her. This is a good thing. I said, can I decorate the place? She said, to your heart's content. I said, I'm going to bring a birthday cake. Harry said, oh, no, the cake's my thing. Jesus. <laughs> I got there the next morning at 2 o'clock, and I decorated the place. I made a big sign, happy birthday, Agnes, and put it on the mirror behind the counter. I had the place bruised. I had it ready. Jan, who did the cooking, had gotten the word out on the street so that by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed into this place. It was... It was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. 3.30 in the morning, in they came. And as they came in, we all yelled, Happy birthday, Agnes! Screaming at the top of her lungs. I've never seen anybody so stunned in my life. Her knees buckled, they steadied her, they got her and sat her down on a stool. We started singing happy birthday to her. And they brought in the birthday cake. And when she saw the cake and the candles, she started to cry. I said, what's going to happen now? And Harry yelled, knock it off. Knock it off, Agnes, and blow out the candles. Blow out the candles. She tried, but she couldn't do it. 
So he blew out the candles. He handed her a knife and he said, cut the cake, Agnes. Come on now, cut the cake. She looked at me knowing that I was involved. She said, is it okay, mister, if I don't cut the cake? I said, it's your cake. She said, let me take the cake home and show it to my mother. I promise you, I'll bring it right back. She picked up the cake like it was the Holy Grail. She pushed through the crowd out the door, and as the door swung slowly shut, there was stunned silence. You talk about an awkward moment, not a sound. And I didn't know what to do, so I said, what do you say we pray? <laughs> We're looking back on it now. So, a sociologist leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning in a diner? It was the right thing to do. I asked God to deliver her from what dirty, filthy people had done to her. You know how this happens. Some man messes over a girl when she's 13 or 14, and, and her whole self-image gets blown, and it's downhill from there. You know how people get destroyed. And I prayed that God would make her new, because it's a scripture you heard today about Jesus. He says, behold, I make all things new. And I prayed, make her new again. When I finished the prayer, Harry leaned across the counter and said, hey, Campolo, you told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of church you preach in? And in one of those moments when you come up with just the right words, I said, I, I preach in a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> I'll never forget his reaction. He said, no, you don't. No, you don't. I would join a church like that. <laughs> Let me break it to you people. That is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. He came to create a church made up of people who would bring celebration into the lives of people who have nothing to celebrate. Elderly people shut in who mumble the song, me and my shadow, strolling down the avenue, me and my shadow, got no one to tell our troubles to. And when it's 12 o'clock, we climb the stairs. No need to knock. Nobody's there. Just me and my shadow, all alone and feeling mighty blue. Has the Holy Spirit invaded you? and made you into somebody through whom he can change the world that is into what it ought to be? Has he entered into you as Christ a living presence so that you have a mission in life and that's to bring the salvation story and the power of the Holy Spirit into the lives of people who desperately hunger for it? And the last thing is, your responsibility as a church is not just to preach truth or set goals and give meaning, it's it's to empower people with the capacity to love. The problem with most of the students on this campus is their concept of love emerges out of the culture. That's the cultural concept of love, and it's largely romanticism. That's what it is, it's largely romanticism. Nothing wrong with romance, nothing wrong with romance at all. It'll get you married. It just doesn't last very long. You've got to have a deeper kind of love than romance. You say, Mom, the student asks, how will I know when I am in love? And every mother in America answers exactly the same way. When you've found the right one and you're in love, you'll know.
That clarifies everything. <laughs> Nimkoff and Wood in their classical studies say intensive romanticism dies down, dies down. And unless there's a deeper kind of love that comes to take its place, things will end up in an ugly manner. And we will become, as T.S. Eliot said, the empty men, the hollow men, the straw men, blown to and fro by the wind. There is a love that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Have we talked about the Holy Spirit? This does not look like a Pentecostal crowd to me. But to be invaded by the Spirit, not only to believe in Jesus, but invite him into your life so he becomes alive and vital and, and dynamic and makes you into somebody who brings love to others. There's a very sophisticated school that's right near Eastern, where I teach now. They invite me over there to speak with great regularity because I'm an ardent feminist and they like me. They asked me to talk about traditional marriage. And I did. I made the case as best I could. Afterwards, these very brilliant Bryn Mawr women, this is an elitist school, gathered around me and they began to argue. And I usually can handle arguments, but not these women. They were really bright, and they came on. Man, were they aggressive. And I kept on backing up and backing up, and finally I'm against the wall. They had invaded my private space. I don't lose, lose arguments for several reasons. One is I'm very loud. <laughs> Secondly, I talk very fast. It's hard to beat a fast-talking loudmouth, but I was losing this argument. And the third reason why I don't lose arguments is because when I speak, I spit. And people do back off. <laughs> These women were not backing off. And I was about to go down for the count of 10, and then I said, wait a minute. I have a friend. His name is Dale Moody. He describes the day his mother died. She rolled off the chair onto the floor in the kitchen. Her husband of 54 years swept her up in his arms, ran from the place, plunked her in the front seat of the pickup truck. They were down the lane and onto the highway before anybody else could get to them. She was dead on arrival at the hospital. The day of the funeral, they put her in the grave. Then they retreated back to the homestead. And as Dale and his brother, who was a philosophy professor, sat on the back porch, the old man said, what do you suppose mom was doing right now? What do you suppose mom is doing this very moment? That's a hard question to answer, but Dale said, I, I told my father, well, she closed her eyes. And when she opened them, the first thing she saw was the face of Jesus. And the old man smiled and rocked back and forth and said, oh, oh, and you may remember this old hymn. He started reciting, oh, that will be. Glory for me, glory for me. When by his grace I look on his face, that will be glory. That will be glory for me. Now take me back to the cemetery. Dale said, it's 1030 at night. Don't argue with a man who's just buried his wife for 54 years. He went back to the cemetery. The old man checked out the tombstone and the flowers and made sure everything was in sight. And then he grabbed one arm and pulled his one son and then the other son, and he held them tightly. And he said, boys, it's been a good day. Your mother died first. 
You see, boys, I didn't want to have her go through the pain and the suffering that I'm going to go through having been the person that's left behind. I, I wanted her to go first so she wouldn't have to bear this loneliness and, and suffering that I'm going to have to endure. It ended just the way I wanted it to end. 54 good years. And what a blessed note on which it could end. And he squeezed these two sons closely to him. He said, we can go home now. We can go home now. It's been a good 54 years. And it ended just the way I wanted it to end. We can go home now. And when I finished telling the story, there was dead silence. And I looked at my Bryn Mawr students and I said to myself, I've got them. I've got them. And I said, you couldn't possibly understand what those two people, through the power of the Spirit, the love that Jesus can create within us and enable us to connect with others in depth, you couldn't possibly understand what they had created between them. And I knew. I had said something that touched them. The truth is, there's nothing wrong with romance. But when the Holy Spirit possesses us, he empowers us or she empowers us to love the other in ways that hitherto was unknown. And so that's your responsibility as a, as a church to create a plausibility structure to help young people ascertain the meaning in life and, and to empower them to love. That's the end of my rip. I belong to a African-American church and you've been a lovely congregation considering you're overwhelmingly white. <laughs> white Presbyterians are hard to talk to. You can say anything to white Presbyterians. I just returned from the moon. <laughs> I belong to an African-American church, 1,500 in our congregation. And when you speak there, they let you know how you're doing. <laughs> Even when you're not doing well, they let you know. One time I was halfway through a sermon that was going nowhere. And some lady in the back of the church yelled, help him, Jesus, help him, Jesus. And I knew it wasn't going well. Once a year in our church, we have student recognition day and they come and they sit on the first four rows and one by one, they come to the pulpit and tell them what they're doing at the university. And when, in fact, they're all finished and seated bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, the pastor got up, he looked at them, and he said, children, children, you're going to die. You're going to die. That's a good thing to tell young people. <laughs> they don't think they're going to die. That's why they drive the way they do. They don't think they're going to die. He said, you don't think you're going to die. You're going to die. They're going to take you out to the cemetery. They're going to drop you in a hole. They're going to throw dirt in your face. And they're going to go back to the church and eat potato salad. <laughs> when you were born, you were the only one that cried. Everybody else was happy. Not important. Here's what's important. When you die, will you be the only one that's happy? And everyone else will cry. Well, that depends. That depends on what your life is about. Have you asked Jesus to become a living presence in you? Have you lived a life of kingdom building, touching other people with love? Is Christ living out his love to others through you? I mean, right now you're gathering titles. 
doctor's degrees, master's degrees, bachelor's degrees, titles, 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 titles. Is that what's important, titles? I'll tell you what's important, testimonies. See, that's black preaching. White people can't do that. That's got rhythm, that's got poetry. Titles or testimonies. And then he did what only a black preacher can do. He swept to the Bible in five minutes. We get bogged down, you've heard us. Today we're gonna to exegete the third verse of the second chapter of Philippians. <laughs> this guy started in Genesis and goes through Revelation in one sweep. There was Moses and there was Pharaoh. Pharaoh had the title ruler of Egypt, good title, but when it was over, that's all he had. He had the title, but Moses had testimonies. Isn't that good? There's a, a Queen Jezebel, another good title. Queen, Queen Jezebel. She was going to destroy the Elijah, the prophet of God, but when it was over, all she had was a title. She had the title, but Elijah had the... It's getting to you. I'll give you one more chance. I'm going to... I'm going to de-honketize you if you'll let me. There's, there's King Darius and there's Daniel. Uh, uh, Darius had the title king, good title king, but when it was over, that's all he had. He had the title, but Daniel had the... And we need to tell students that when it's all over, their titles will be good to have. It will be good to have a tombstone and obituary that lists the titles. But we want to raise up a generation of young people who, when it's all said and done, will have testimonies as to what Christ has done for them and what they, through his indwelling presence, has been able to do for other people. I wish for you both titles and testimonies. But hear me, people, if you've got to make a choice, go for the testimonies. Eternal God, creator of all people and of all things invisible and visible alike. God of all history, you are, the Lord, you are the Lord and the goal, the power and light of all the activities of the human spirit. Today we bring before you our prayers of intercession for all those who are struggling with physical illness, with loss of hope, with mental co conditions, complicated relationships, with people with stressful parents and difficult youth. Gracious God, we pray prayers for those who are learning to be parents for the first time and those of us hoping for the day we can be parents. Lord God, we pray for our college community. We pray for college students. We ask prayers for the college band. We pray for our partnership with Young Life. We pray for club on Tuesday nights and the Bible study here at our church every Thursday for college students. We pray for core groups, for youth and college students to go to Montreat this summer and Christmas break. And we pray that we can truly be a community that believes in our college students. Gracious God, we, can we be the ones who believe in them and hope for them and love them and strengthen them? Gracious God, you are a God who moves in this world. We ask that you'd come upon us and help us to be people of joy and people of late night and people of birthday parties wherever they are needed and wherever they are possible. Lord God, we are not all able to do all things, but we know that as a community of faith, you move in us and that together we are able to do so much more. 
Gracious God, just come into this place and move upon us that we might be the people you are dreaming of, that we could be a church that is integrated, that we could be a church where all are welcome, that we could be a church that has disagreements but finds ways to work through them. May we be a big tent church where people come and know that they can talk about the complicated issues, where they can talk about the difficult issues and know that no matter what they say and who they are, they, we may, if we speak in love, we will be that community of love. Gracious God, I pray for our pastors, I pray for our staff, I pray for each volunteer, I pray for our bell ringers, our choir members, our organists. Gracious God, we pray for our Sunday school teachers, and we pray for all those who minister, our deacons, our Stephen ministers, and we pray for our elders who lead us. Gracious God, we believe and we pray for this congregation to go out and be people of love. Lord, you have met us here in this worship time, and we are thankful for your presence. And we pray as Christ taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.